Who's going to say hello first this time, this week? Me or you, Giles? I don't know. Oh, I don't know. You go first. <sighs> I think I normally say hello to you first, actually. I'll do it then. Hello, Giles. Julia how are you I'm good are you fully fully dressed yet fully dressed yes I'm you're not you're not pajamaed is what I meant I didn't mean afternoon I didn't mean you're sitting there naked (laughs) well you know me sometimes I'm in my pajamas all day so I wondered if no I I am I'm I'm not I'm not very good at doing the pajamas all day thing I have to say I quite like being dressed yeah I like being dressed as well but sometimes I just get so busy I'm like oh well, yeah. I might as well it's, it's 11 o'clock I might as well just stay in them My, our kids love pajamas they would easily stay in their pajamas every day all day every day I find it very hard to get my kids out of pajamas at the mm. weekends they, they go, oh, pajamas? I don't really like pajamas I've been mean, yeah we're getting probably too much information but I don't normally I don't wear pajamas in bed or anything I just I think you might have revealed that in another podcast it's all coming back to me now we might be repeating ourselves now and and the listeners will be turning off in their droves well they will Um, the thought of me being naked in bed I'm going to ask you instead about something called stinking nightshade have you ever heard of it (laughs) this is a very good segue from me being naked to stinking nightshade yeah Um, it's like it's your wife's pet name it's what Michelle (laughs) calls you hello darling stinking nightshade (laughs) um no I haven't heard of stinking nightshade what is it you know we we like to have a little story, don't we, to, at the top of our, if we're doing interviews uh, at this, a little bit of positive podcast. Welcome, everybody. That's what it is. I've got it out there now. At the beginning of the podcast, we like to have a little positive story. I don't know that this is positive, but I found it very interesting, and it's certainly appropriate for our guest today. Mm. Um, so Stinking Nightshade is called, it real in real life, the Latin name is Hyocinemus. Uh, that's for you. Okay. Hyocinemus niger, actually, is the full name. Um, and it's a plant. Mm. And um, there was this great story that I was reading about Vikings. You know that Vikings are known for being pretty violent and uh, and sort of elite warriors. Well, yeah. according, according to Viking legend, um, these warriors who were known as berserkers, I am mm-hmm. adopting that name from now. It's like you can say, great, you're berserkers. A great word, isn't it? Berserk. Isn't it great? So they, they, they basically, they, you know, they went into combat, they plowed into combat in this like trance-like state of fury and they were fearless. And now it seems that there's a reason uh, for their fueled rampages mm. because a seed has been found in a grave in Denmark dating back to 980. And the seed is that of the Hyocymus niger, which is the stinking nightshade, which contains apparently two things, hyocyamine and something called scopopolamine. So I might have said that incorrectly. Scopolamine, I think it is. Um, And both of these things trigger aggression and hyperactivity. So it would have reduced their sensation of pain and it would have literally made them wild. Okay. So it's like, was it a hallucinogen or something? I don't know if it's lucigen, but it's certainly it's like what it has one of the it's it's it was a, a you know a plant mm. herb that sent them berserkers. Wow, isn't so, that interesting? It's very. So did it give? It was like sort of rocket fuel for them. Yeah, like, like, like I suppose like having a big a big shot or you know yeah. some, some double you know, alcohol. Double espresso. I think a bit more than a double espresso. <laughs> a triple espresso. Might, a triple espresso with no frothy milk on the top. Yeah. And so yeah. the plant's still around. Can you still get it? Yes. Well, I've heard of a stinking nightshade, or is it evening nightshade? I've definitely heard, have mm. uh, heard of that in like Miss Marple Murder Mysteries. It's one of those things yes. that can be used to kill people, I'm sure. Yes. Um, yeah. So stay away from it. Don't drink it for, for certain. Um, mm. And if you. You'll turn into a Viking. You'll turn into a berserker. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm going to avoid that then. Definitely avoid it. We don't want any fueled rampages going on at no, home. Thank you. That's, no, that's... <laughs> and if you do get into a fueled uh, a fueled rage, you might need to enlist the help of our of our guest today, Sue Stewart Smith. Do you like what I did there? Oh, that was very good. This is because... why you're the professional. 
<laughs> yeah, allegedly. Sue Stewart Smith, it's Sue Stewart Smith, Sue Stewart Smith, um, is she could offer you professional help because did she say psychi- psychiatrist? Yes, psychiatrist. So she's a psychiatrist and she's a very keen gardener. Mm. And she's yes, written a book. She's written a book called The Well-Gardened Mind, Rediscovering Nature in the Modern World. And it is fascinating because I, you, I know that you're going to say to me that a, a book about gardening doesn't sound very gripping. But in fact, it is very gripping because Sue doesn't only talk about her love of gardening in the book. She then uses her professional brain, the medical side, because I think she's a qualified medical doctor as well, mm. to talk about how gardening and how plants and how nature are not just healing and good for us, but how they they can be used very effectively in different types of therapy as well. So she will explain better than me. She talks about how if you have certain conditions, there are different gardens that would be suitable to to visit with her and, and or, or with therapists, and you could you could go into a form of therapy in mm. different shapes and forms of gardens. It is fascinating. It is, it really and is. she's sort of explored extensively various different types of garden, like you say, for different whether it might be um, if you've got special needs, or yeah. you know, or have prison gardens and hospital gardens. There's all these different spaces where gardens are really making a huge difference to people's lives. Yes, and she talks about it all. And she's here with us today. Hello, Sue Stewart-Smith. I came across a really lovely quote this week. I'm going to read it to you now. It's gardening adds years to your life and life to your years. And I, I wondered if you could just sort of tell us a little bit about how you found your love of gardening. Good quote. It is a great quote, isn't it? Um, yeah. I found my love of gardening in my early 30s after I I was married. And um, before that, I'd not really been interested in gardening at all. I'd I'd loved nature. I'd spent a lot of time walking and, um, you know, enjoy it, just getting out and enjoying the natural world. But but for me, gardening was, uh, it was always, I looked at it as, as outdoor housework. It came into a kind of category of, of chores. Um, uh, so it didn't, it wasn't something I think in my 20s that I thought I would really get into. Um, then I met my husband, who is the landscape designer, um, Tom Stewart-Smith. And uh, he is not only a passionate gardener, but is a very knowledgeable plantsman. And mm. we married. It's always, married, it's always yeah. lovely when you have yeah. somebody who knows. I love it when you walk around the garden and they know everything. Oh, it's yeah. such a yeah. such a lovely experience. Yeah. So, he, so in some ways, that's made me rather lazy about plant names because I can always ask him what they are. Um, <laughs> yes. But uh, so 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 we married, and I I thought I thought he loves this so much. I I'm going to love it too. And uh, and we started making a garden in our home, which is where we still live which was a, um, a converted barn set in, the, in, an, in an open field. And uh, for Tom, that was a blank canvas. So, you know, bit by bit, we carved out a little more garden and started making, making a sort of a, a place for ourselves. And I very much in those early years tagged along. I was sort of trying to help or just, just taking photographs of what we were doing, things like that. And, and, it was only when our youngest child went to school for the first time that, and I, by then I was in my early 30s, that I thought, you know what, I really want to have my own little plot. And I think it hmm. is, you know, that makes such a difference. And I think that's why it's so important for children when they get into gardening to have their own, their own plot. And I made a little herb garden. I was interested in medicinal herbs and herbs for cooking. And that got me going. And it was particularly growing things from seed that I loved, um, and that's that stayed with me really ever since. The 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 magic of germination of seeds is is always always a thrill. And and I moved on from that to vegetable gardening quite quickly, um, which I still do. And for me, that's there's nothing better than going out and picking picking your food for your your lunch or your dinner. 
You see, Giles and I both have young children, and mm. uh, when 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 the kids are young, they come home from school with the little pots uh, with uh, a blob of cotton wool and a seed in it, and I it's so wonderful to see them um, and to watch their wonder at nature. And I think that we all, I think a lot of people, if they live in towns and cities, I think they lose that and they stop growing things because they think, oh, I haven't got a garden. So and it just isn't part of everyday life for so many people. And I don't think there's any excuse. I think we should all be growing something, even, even if it is just a little herb or a sunflower or an indoor plant. It's, we need to do that to connect back to nature, don't we? I think we do. And I think I think actually a lot of people did it instinctively at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, you know, mm. there was a rush on buying seeds. And I had a number of friends who'd never been into gardening who sort of say, I'm, I'm germinating seeds on my windowsill. And, you know, they, it, <laughs> it was it was something that, that we, we instinctively turn back to it at times of crisis, I think. And we forget how important it is. Um, and actually, nature's that, that the power of nature's regeneration is formidable. And, and actually, it's very important for us, for us, uh, for our psyche, um, you know, in terms of mm. hope for the future and feeling, feeling more optimistic about life. And, uh, and actually, for me, at that, that point, although, you know, I've been feeling like this way about gardening for a long time, um, in March, I was germinating my tomato plants inside the house where it was warm. And mm. those, those little plants, as they grew, were enormously important. I kept them inside for much longer than I would have done otherwise. They were on nurturing my windowsill. Them. And nurturing them, but also they were the first thing I saw when I opened the curtains in the morning. And they'd always grown mm. a bit more overnight. You know, and that was, such, that was such a positive start to the day before listening to the news or anything else to feel something was growing, yeah. something was still thriving. And also thinking about the future, you know, in, in a, in a, um, I think gardening in a positive one, way. One of the powers mm. of gardening is absolutely that that it gives you a very accessible way and a very simple, straightforward way of thinking in your mind two or three months ahead and looking forward to whatever, whether it's the flowers and their beauty that you're, you're you know, you're going to grow, or whether it's the produce and how delicious it's going to be, you know, this is all going on somewhere inside, even if you, even if you're not consciously mapping it out, it gives you that sense of sense of a future. Sue, are you a psychotherapist or a psychologist? I'm, I'm not, I'm not a psychologist. I'm a psychiatrist. That was my yeah. first um, qualification. So I'm a medical doctor. And then I trained as a psychotherapist. That became my specialism within, within psychiatry. So I, I do both of those. So your book, The Well Garden Mind, is so fascinating because you've managed to uh, w- weld together your skill sets uh, as a professional and your passion for gardening because you genuinely believe, don't you, and, and there are, there are uh, chapters in your book about this, that different types of gardens can help us all with different sorts of psychological issues and problems that we may have yes i think that's right and i think but i think at root you know if we go back to the most basic level in which gardening can help us um that you know if we start with the brain um the first level is just that contact with green nature and you don't have to be gardening to get that benefit just being in a park walking in the countryside we, you know, there's now a, a large body of research that shows that particularly green nature has a very, um, has, an, has a, a strong anti-stress effect on us. And that's been demonstrated many times in many studies. So it lowers blood pressure, lowers heart rate, lowers cortisol levels. All those things are important in terms of our mental and physical health. But then, Giles, then, that's what I... That's what I'm always banging on to you about, Giles, the green therapy stuff. Green therapy stuff. Actually, I know. Uh, Yeah, green therapy (laughs) is a real thing. And, you know, there are evolutionary reasons why it might be so. You know, our remote Mm. ancestors needed needed to survive in the wild. And the places that make us feel good are very often places which in prehistory 
would be the kind of the kind of vegetation um, you know with a water source perhaps with um, flowering plants uh, you know so sign of fruits to come these places that were good for survival so so these kind of places make make us feel relaxed and boost our mood like you know you want to stay in this place it's a signal in your brain mm. this is a good place to be mm. um, and that 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 is a that's a survival uh, mechanism at root so so all of that is going on when you're gardening but also you know one of the things we've already talked about is the future orientation which is enormously important for anyone well any of us actually but particularly you know, we're talking about mental health as well. You know, if you're struggling with depression or anxiety, when the future's often, you know, usually is, is filled by definition with with sort of anxious thoughts and fears, having having one part of your life where you, you you're carving out a future, you're shaping a future that is free from all that is enormously helpful. So so yeah, I mean, there are many 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 ways in which gardening helps us. I think actually being creative is is there's a real joy that we we can feel in being creative and w- the creativity in the garden is a kind of partnership it's a relationship with nature so you know it, it's human creativity and nature's creativity come together and i think that's mm. a lot to do with the potency of it um but i also think for people who otherwise might feel um that they they don't know how to. They, they finding a way to express their creative impulses may be may be difficult, um, but actually it, it gives you a very accessible way to do that, to be to be creative. Well, I was I was interested because we sort of alluded to it earlier about the fact that we've kind of you know in this modern technological world we've kind of moved away from these from from being out in nature a lot more. We you know we're inside a lot more now, and I think you know people like. I know I've read about Carl Jung, I think once said, we've moved away from the dark maternal, you know, the earthy ground um, of our being. We're yes, that, sort of... that quotation's in my book. Yeah, yeah, that we've, we've yeah, that we need to, we need to reconnect with the, with the dark maternal ground of our being. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah and it's, and, and I feel like at this time, you know, you said at the beginning of lockdown, people were sort of uh, desperate to sort of reconnect with their gardens, perhaps, or, or have that, t- you know, they had that time perhaps to do it. Yes. Um, yes. Do you think that's something that we've, yeah, we've lost along the way? I think, I think people vary in how much they've lost it. I th- but I do think technology kind of sucks us in if we're not careful, and um, mm. so it's easy to um, easy to to lose lose touch with with just simple things like you know for many people uh, in the pandemic you actually the value of exercising out of doors suddenly took on a whole new new meaning didn't it and significance mm. rather than mm. rather than going to the gym which nobody could do anymore and actually it's one of the things i i always recommend to any of my patients who i'm seeing is you know if you're exercising green exercise uh has been shown to be much more beneficial than exercising indoors and of course, that's again. It's what we, you know, we have to think what the body evolved to do, what the brain evolved to do, um, and uh, you know, that's that, that's how we're made. Um, and so, so I think I think there is something about losing touch with it, and I think I think that is partly to do with not, you know, if it's accessible, if it's around you, um, that that changes everything. And one one of the um, uh, one of the examples I write about in in my book is the incredible edible movement in Todmorden, who have who have transformed uh, um, the town of Todmorden with with flower beds all around the town, with vegetable a lot of vegetable people can vegetables that people can help themselves to. Um, it dotted outside shops along the canal, outside the police station. So suddenly, suddenly nature's there and it's it's accessible. Uh, and one of the things I loved was that they took the, took the health centre to task for having prickly shrubs outside it, um, uh, and and said, "Look, come on, you're a health centre. This needs to have you know healthy healthy food." And 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 the health centre and be more welcoming and, and be more welcoming and agree to let them remove them. 
So they now, there are fruit trees there now, and they've planted a little apothecary garden as well. So oh, these things really matter, don't they? I mean, they, they give out strong messages um, and, and they shift, you know, it, it's about just shifting our consciousness a bit more towards nature. I feel, I feel quite, one of the things I feel hopeful about coming out, you know, as we are doing this slow emer emergence from the pandemic is, is, is the extent to which so many people um, realise the importance of nature for their, for their mental health and their emotional well-being. It's interesting I, that you... I think, I think just, I just want to add that the other thing, of course, that it threw up was, um, was the disparity between people who didn't have access and those who did. And, yeah, and that, you know, that is also something that we need, we need to attend to as a society. Um, well, that's what I, that's why I said earlier, isn't it important that we can all plant something, even if it is just in a window box or a pot, yes. um, if, if you haven't, if you're not lucky enough to have access to a garden. And that's why our parks are so vital. Yes. Those green assets that are often talked about in, in sort of those big budget talks, they call them the green assets, but they save the NHS billions of pounds every year. And it's interesting that you just said you would recommend to people rather than going to the gym, we're all told to, you know, exercise and going to the gym, and, but do it outside, cycle or go for a run or go for a walk or do some, do your push-ups at the park. Or, and, and I think we've all just become conditioned to go from one indoor environment to another. And we think we're doing the right thing by exercising at the end of our, of our long day. But yes, you should really think about is going into a uh, another room full of lots of other sweaty people with these with these harsh lights is that the best place to do it well it it, it, it may be you know if you if you want to do weightlifting maybe it is but but otherwise I think you know you're not you're probably not getting any of the anti-stress effects that you will benefit from uh if you exercise out of doors so you know I mentioned earlier reduced blood pressure and and so on there's, there's, a, there's a very compelling piece of research that came out of um, a team in Brisbane where they, they, looked, at, um, they looked at people people going to parks and how many times they visited parks. And it was a very complex bit of research. They, they drilled down into their health records and they also did lots of corrections for, for other kind of socioeconomic uh, factors that influence health. And they estimated mm. that if everybody visited a park once a week for at least 30 minutes, there would be 7% fewer cases of depression and 9% fewer cases of um, high blood pressure, hypertension. Uh, and that, that, to me, really tells, tells us something. You know, nobody, nobody's yet managed to replicate it, but it, and it would be very nice if another team managed to, to do it in another part of the world. Um, well, I think, and I think like if you think like if a pharmaceutical company would be dying for those kind of figures. Yes, absolutely. Yes. And some of the figures around um, around the effects of nature are are really significant. Um, there's, there's another another study, which is a pan-European study run by the University of Glasgow in Edinburgh, uh, but it was both universities. And, and that that again, it looked at a lot of neighborhood amenities. It was a very large scale study. And what that what that showed was that the one, I mean, one resource, the one neighbourhood resource that that um, that had a significant impact on uh, mental health in deprived areas was green space, and they calculated that it could uh, compensate, you know, uh, uh, it could reduce up by up to forty percent the the uh, the 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 um, detrimental effects on mental health that arise through through social deprivation and again that's a very big that's a very big figure and they were surprised by it you know they went back and checked it and, and you know but it's so it's a it's um yeah so I think we we it's very easy to be blind to this and you you know it's it's a fantastic time I think because there's a lot of interest there are a lot of universities researching these these kind of uh, questions, you know, and trying to trying to get answers. Um, mm. So, so it's a very interesting time. I think a lot is emerging. Sue, in your book, uh, there's a fascinating chapter about different gardens 
um, and their therapeutic value and qualities for different conditions. So maybe you can explain it better than me, but you talk, for example, about the types of gardens that might be um, more useful in care homes and then the types of gardens that might be more useful to treat somebody with post-traumatic stress disorder. And I was fascinated by that, that there are different styles of gardens that are more suitable for different brains, I suppose. Well, or different life life situations or life mm. phases. Um, yes, I think, you know, in a way it fits with what I was just saying about the, the power of the intervention, that, um, that if we're thinking about specifically about gardens as a therapeutic intervention, then like any other therapeutic intervention, you, you kind of need to tailor it, you need to get it right. So for somebody suffering from PTSD, um, one, of, one of the most um, uh, difficult things they have to manage is is this condition called hypervigilance where they're constantly on guard and can't 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 relax because their their brain is scanning the environment for, for any possible threat so what what's been found very helpful for and a lot of this work's been done on veterans with ptsd um, what's been found helpful is um, walled gardens in particular the, the enclosed garden that gives a real sense of refuge, um, but also because the layout of a wall garden is often uh, gives you, you know, it has clear paths and there's a clear entrance. Uh, there's also a kind of reassuring sight line. So, so, mm-hmm. so it's a sense of enclosure, but also uh, there's a vista, there's a view. And uh, that's enormously important. And really, until somebody can experience uh, a, a feeling of a sense of safety, you can't begin to treat somebody or help somebody suffering from PTSD. So, so it gives you it gives you a place to start. So, the garden for in trauma, the garden is part, is a kind of therapeutic tool in its own right. You know, before you even start thinking about the growing and the gardening that's going to go on as part of that. Um, just being there. Therapy, just being there is really important. And and that's that's the same for, you know, many people. I mean, hospital gardens are also enormously important in that respect. And one of the things that um, people describe is, is the tremendous sense of companionship they get from from plants and from trees you know when you're very ill um you're you're often you feel isolated you know that there's something which has happened to you maybe very traumatic uh involving losses to your health um and you know however much family and friends may visit you you have you have to deal with this on your own and the presence of nature is enormously helpful in that situation um, it, 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 what, what, what people describe is this feeling that they can be alone but they're not isolated they're surrounded by life and, and it's not only the distraction you know the beauty of, the beauty is important and the insects and the birds are all important but it's a feeling of being part of something larger uh, that's very very important there's, there's one you more talk- example that might be worth just mentioning, actually, Julia, which is the, mm-hmm. um, the autism garden. I don't know whether you had that in mind. Oh, yes. But that, oh, that, yes. Is, that is such an interesting example, and, 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 and I found it fascinating when I visited it. Because the normal, you know, the normal rule of thumb for a therapeutic garden is the greater the amount of biodiversity in the garden, the, the more restorative it is. So, you know, the more complexity there is, the more variety of whatever textures, colours, you know. I mean, as long as it's sort of aesthetically pleasing, but there's, but there's, but that that sense of biodiversity is is important. Um, but the exception to that uh, was I discovered uh, was a garden that I visited um, in a home for people suffering, young adults suffering from a, a very very severe form of autism. And for them, the indoor environment was, was often very uh, restrictive and they got very stressed indoors. So they needed to be able to get outdoors. But what they couldn't tolerate in, in a garden was the, the constantly changing nature of plants 
um, and you know things flowering and fruiting and and all those kind doing of, what gardens do <laughs> doing what gardens do changing with the seasons and what the the design team uh, made for this this home was that was a was a an evergreen garden um, and it was also very rectilinear so it was not a garden that many of us would have found particularly restful but for that group of people it was it, it was exactly what they needed they got all the benefits of being outdoors but that they had a sort of un relatively unchanging environment around them. That's fascinating. It was it? It's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. You talk about uh, it, there's another study that you talk about in in your book, um, which is uh, it was I think it was in the 80s, and it was about a hospital in Pennsylvania, and it was a group of patients who were recovering from gallbladder surgery, and one group had windows looking towards some some trees, and the other group looked out at a brown brick wall and not surprisingly now after our conversation but the, the patients in the hospital who were looking out across at the trees had a faster recovery and a better recovery than the ones mm. who didn't have that view isn't that fascinating and incredible that just looking at nature can have such a positive impact yes it is and I think you know I think it's salutary actually that that um, it was a groundbreaking study when it when it came out in the eighties by Roger Ulrich, who, who's gone on and, and and really developed the field the field of um, sort of what he calls biophilic ar architecture. Um, you know that it's taken us still a very long time to wake up to this, and and you know what's good now is that hospitals, all new hospitals that are built. Um, are expected to have a garden provision for a garden and that's that's a big change actually because for a long time gardens were seen within healthcare as a potential sort of drain on resources you know because they need maintenance um, and also gardens were lost for car parking uh, and mm -hmm. and for expanding the hospital the you know building so I think we are we are realizing that they really are a big asset and and they need not be a drain um that they bring a lot of benefits with them so so i think that's a very important change that's beginning to happen and there was some there was also a lovely story i don't know if you saw it um uh i think it was in may uh about robin hanbury tennyson the explorer who 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 was in icu in plymouth and he's in his 80s and he was on a ventilator for five weeks and this this um, this ICU unit uh, has a very small garden at the back, which was actually created from plants donated from the Chelsea Flower Show. And he he'd been in a delirium and he'd been very very ill. But for him, it was just being out in the garden. They wheeled him out the day they wheeled him out. Um, he felt the sense in the garden and being able to see the flowers. He just he describes feeling himself coming back to reality, and he 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 thinks the garden really sort of helped him helped him come through what was a very very uh, life threatening situation. Um, so so you know gardens can even have a role in intensive care units. Yes, gosh, there, there's your next book, Sue. My garden <laughs> saved my life. <laughs> yeah, yes. Case studies from around the world. <laughs> Well, also, I, I, I read about um, that uh, prison gardens are very helpful for prisoners as well. And often um, there's been a there's been a, um, a study sort of show that oft sometimes prisoners won't reoffend. They've had that. And I, I wondered if it's to do with, you know, um, you know being able to like be able to hear their own thoughts, you know, uh, being productive, mm. seeing something, achieving something, having a sense of purpose, as well as having those sort of natural things going on as well. Prison gardens are very, very important. And I think um, the, the example I write about in my book was my visit to Rikers Island, which is a big prison complex um, in New York. And there are now eight gardens there run by the Horticultural Society of New York. And they, they have remarkable effects. I mean, the, the reoffending rate for, uh, for, for Rikers and for many, many prisons, actually, is... is is about sixty percent, and that's within two or three years. Sixty percent of prisoners are back, mm. back inside. But but mm. for the 
for the prisoners who had attended the Hortz programme, which very importantly actually also includes a gardening internship after they come out of jail. Um, the the reoffending rate was as low as between 10 to 15 percent. So that's a big, Gosh. big difference. Mm. And you're right, Giles, you know, it, it, it comes back to what I just said earlier about it being a very accessible form of creativity, that actually mm. it's, it's a way in which people can derive an enormous amount of self-esteem. It provided you grow things that are relatively straightforward to grow. Um, there isn't a huge amount that can go wrong, you know, and that you can then a few months later, you're harvesting the most delicious pumpkin, let's say, that you can yeah. you can yeah. share with other people. You know, because that's the other lovely thing about gardening, particularly vegetable gardening, but also kind of flower gardening is it's shared pleasure and and, um, you know, it brings people together. Uh, so we had our first we had our first radishes recently. Ah, oh, nice. And my children were so thrilled to be well. The, well, two of them don't like radishes. One of them loves them, but the, but for them to pull them, you know, from the soil, yes. and then we wash them together, and we put them on the plates, and and yeah. for them to have been part of that whole process, and then watch their sister eat them all, um, was was lovely. It was such a nice thing for them to do. So gratifying. And my kids love the outdoors. I mean, they're sort of. I don't have to drag them out there. They they really do, but. But growing that this this during lockdown, growing growing things has been a real highlight for them. I think there's a wonderful feeling, um, which I think it really is. Oh my goodness! I've you know I, I initiated this. I made this happen, and that mm. that I think is very important. And that that came through in so many of the interviews I did with with um, with people on various projects. Um, you know, one one um, one person said to me, "It's the only the only only time I feel I'm good that I'm you know I'm doing something good." Um, you know, if if your if your self esteem is very low, that's that's a hugely helpful thing to feel. Um, and I I know you know when my life sort of you know at periods of stress or something like that. You know, it's just the the garden just gives so much back to you. Uh, you know, you, you can you feel oh well that's something something's gone well something's good. I mean yes, you have to put up with the times that the the slugs kind of decimate your lettuces and you know there are, oh. it has its frustrations too. But eggshells, uh, everyone, eggshells. Exactly, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you protect your plants a bit um, and don't use horrible chemicals either. Um, no. uh, yeah, then you know the rewards. Nature is really bountiful, you know, and uh, the rewards are are. A, a, a great really you mentioned the chemical word then sue so it's all right you brought it up not me i'm fiercely anti-pesticides and chemicals and it's something that i talk about quite a lot and giles is a bit bored of me talking about it as well i think never um, never bored of two no, <laughs> but i think that you you talked a little bit about the town that was growing everything and the all the neighbourhood could pluck things, and and that kind of uh, that kind of initiative, guerrilla gardening. I, I remember yes, doing a, yes, a piece yes. about it once. Is so good for the community, and one of my big passions now is to try and get lots of councils to stop using pesticides and stop killing all the long verges, the tall long grasses, and and getting rid of all the weeds, which sometimes aren't weeds; they're beautiful flowers, um, and just. Try and try and get things to be a bit wilder. Why does everything have to be trimmed back and short and stumpy grass and brown and ditch the chemicals? Let things grow. Let nature come back into all of our towns and cities. I couldn't agree more. And I, but I think I think there is, it's it's a strange, um, it's an aesthetic that I think got a grip in the sort of probably the fifties and sixties and maybe seventies, um, and uh, I think it's sort of. It's seen as kind of civic, I don't know what, maybe it got caught up with civic pride. And certainly, you know, in, in, um, uh, in it's also very strong in America. You know, what, mm. one, one of the examples oh, I, I, given, I given, given my book is uh, Ron Finley, the guerrilla gardener there, who was, who was uh, threatened with, with prosecution for growing um, vegetables on the strip outside his house. And um, Crazy, in fact, he fought. It? He fought it, and he got he got the the um, the the law changed. And now his, he lives in uh, Los Angeles. Now in Los Angeles, you can grow food in your in your front garden and on the and on the verges. 
But but it, how incredible that he had only in America would you have to go to to court yeah. for something like that? Yes, absolutely. But but mm. uh, but but I think it. I think it's a. I think we need to shift the aesthetic partly and get and get the ecological message across because I agree with you completely. You know, a, a vision wildflowers growing on the side of roads is so much more beautiful than um, than uh, than closely cut grass. And really, I think it I think it would save money as well because you know the grass wouldn't need so much maintenance. Um, but but we know we need it for it would, insects. It would save lives. I think it would save, save lives. lives as well. It would save it from a let's we don't want to get too political, but these chemicals well, are generally not healthy for humans and they're certainly not good for wildlife. They're not good for wildlife at all. And um, you know, we, we do need to wake up to that. And I think people are waking up to it. I thought the No Mo May movement was wonderful. Um no, a, lot, a lot a lot of that on social media, which was really good to see. And we still haven't mowed quite a lot of our grass and it's full of wildflowers. It's great. Yes, I've got I've got very shaggy grass. I love it. Mm, mm. How about you, Giles? Yeah, yeah, ours has been very shaggy. Um, and what, it, quite nice at the front. We've got um, French lavender pouring over Ooh, the thing, and it's lovely. Um, yeah, and it smells amazing when you're walking up the path. Yeah, I'm 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 the same. I think we've been going around looking at sort of some of the um, children's play parks and stuff where the grass has grown up high. I think it looks amazing actually. And I think for my children, they've wanted to dive in there with the grass, long grass and, you know, play hide and seek and stuff. So I think, yeah, I'm all for keeping those like verges and things longer. Yes. I, I think the problem is it's sort of, it's come to be associated with neglect. So I, I saw a lovely, yeah. I saw a lovely post on social media of someone who, who'd let their lawn grow. Um, but and, and he, what he'd done is he'd, he'd mown a, a small path through it, a sort of curving path, which made it look very pretty. Mm. And, and what he'd written, I can't quite remember how he wrote it. If your neighbours are disapproving of you letting your, your, your lawn grow, you know, just mow a path through it. And then it's clear that it's, as it were, not neglect, that this is, this is deliberate. You know? And yeah. I thought that was actually a very good strategy. You know, <laughs> if you're living in that kind of community, because, you know, we, we, we're... Yeah, that that's something that can be difficult to to deal with, can't it? God, yes, the pressure, peer peer pressure from your neighbours to pressure, cut your grass. Yes, <laughs> yes, 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 yes. That's a very real factor in it, and that that's part of what needs to change. I think. Definitely. Well, if people are listening, you can join something. I'm I'm uh, I follow them on Twitter. It's called Pan UK. It's the Pesticide Action Network. And they give you lots of info about pesticides and uh, they publish reports every week as well. And apparently, you know, the US is obviously pushing to weaken our the UK pesticide standards at the moment, which is something we must fight back from, I think. I agree. Completely agree. Yes. Yep. Yep. Yeah, no more toxic chemicals. Sue, fascinating. I could talk to you all day. Yeah, Giles, is there anything else you want to ask Sue? Well, we've got her. She, she, remember, we've got we've got professional help here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, my, my our garden. We've you know we've we never had a garden before. We lived in a flat, and then we've moved to a house, and we've got a nice garden now. My wife has become very green fingered. She's out most days doing bits in the garden, and and it, do you know what? It's lovely seeing her doing it actually, and she's found a real purpose. For, for that for all of us as like you say like a family we've been able to get involved I probably haven't got involved as much as I'd like to but certainly the children have and that's been lovely to see and I think that idea as well that um you know you might grow something and then you cook it as well and then you have that shared experience of growing it eating it you know and that that's been fantastic to to have a garden to be able to do that and I know we're very lucky to have one um, I know that not everybody has a, has that space. For us, it's been so beneficial as, as a family, as a family unit, coming together and doing that together. What's yeah. your favourite flower? What's your favourite plant, Sue? I know it must be very difficult because I'm sure your garden is outstanding because of your your husband and all your years of uh, of loving toil. But you must have a favourite. How how are the rose bushes doing? Don't you particularly love roses? And well, <laughs> no, they 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 they. Well, we have some. We have some wonderful climbing roses. But we had a rose garden. You, you had a failure, time. didn't you? We had. We, well, it wasn't so much a. Fa- it sort of was a failure. It was our ground is not really well suited to roses where we are mm-hmm. and this is going way back actually we're talking sort of uh, 28 years ago or 30 years ago when we started making the garden and uh we it just increasingly was clear it comes back to chemicals actually the only way we could keep the roses looking healthy was to keep spraying them 
And mm. and I was particularly um, troubled by that. But Tom, I mean, Tom didn't like it either. So we just, you know, there's something about that. And I think that's really important in gardening is you have to you have to work with nature. You know, you have to you, have, you can grow what's what what grows well where you are. And, um, you know, that, 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 there's something very um you know, we, we can shape a bit of our environment when we garden, but we're never completely in control. I think it's a great sort of life lesson, really, that, uh, that you can't force nature. And um, I mean, you can try with chemicals, but, but ultimately, really, you, it's, a, it's got to be a partnership. It's got to be. I like to see it as a relationship of give and take, actually, um, that is a sort of reciprocity involved in it. So... But anyway, I, to talk about favourite flowers, I have so many. I wouldn't, I wouldn't really know where to start um, because I, for each sort of part of the season, really, I love. Would them. you put one of your flowers into our happy jar? Well, do you know, I, you you mentioned the happy jar, and I thought actually I'd quite like to put, um, I'd like to put a smell, and I'd like to put a taste. And I'd like to put a sound into your happy jar, all from the garden. Ooh, that sounds amazing. Because, That's because, interesting. Because, we haven't uh, had that before. <laughs> because I, yeah, think, also, I think we are such a visual culture, and I think it's really important that the garden works through all our senses. So, so I'll tell you what my three, my three things in your happy jar are. The first is um, the smell of chamomile, fresh chamomile, which I, I grow in a corner of one of my raised beds. But you can grow perfectly well in a, in a pot. And I don't mm. know if you're familiar with the smell of chamomile, but if you crush the leaves, it has lovely little white flowers. But you don't have to wait mm. till it flowers. You just crush the leaves. It's the most sort of soothing kind of um, uplifting uh, uh, fragrance. I, I particularly Which is love why, it. why we all drink chamomile tea. And we tea drink chamomile tea. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So I fully recommend chamomile. Um, right. My next one is, is, is alpine strawberries which I used to grow oh, in a big yes. pot and um, I now grow in the corner of another, another bed. And um, uh, they're in the corner because they tend to spread, a bit like the chamomile. If, you know, that's mm. why they can be quite good in a pot because they can take over if you're not careful. Um, but I just love the wild strawberries. And, you know, you don't grow them for a harvest, but you, you sort of grow them to do a little bit of foraging when you're in the garden. And the taste is like nothing else. I think it's it's just um, it's sort of a little bit. It explodes in your mouth. It's it's such a wonderful sort of fruity, fruity, fragrant taste actually. So that's my taste. So yes, my my third one is birdsong. But for me, it's the skylarks in our garden, uh, and I love I love listening to them high overhead. They um they they Give me a sensation as if my 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 mind is expanding. I, I feel a, a, an increased sense of mental space actually, um, and I think it's because my senses are reaching so high in the sky to to locate them. Um, so so that's my favourite bird song, and or certainly my favourite at home, and and they're also a very positive sign because they've they've really only come and visited us um, since we started creating meadows around the periphery of our garden. So, so for me, they're, they're sort of hopeful. They're a sign of some, some measure of regeneration that's going on. So, so anyway, that's my, that's my three things for your they happy pot. They are wonderful. I love that we have a sense of the smell and sound. Oh, great. great. They're, they're going to make me happy when I pluck them from the happy jar, when I'm having a bit of a down moment. Good, 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 good. And, you know, they're, but they're all things that are very accessible. You know, you can grow chamomile in a pot, in a small pot even. You can grow an al one alpine strawberry plant. Uh, and, you know, we can all listen to birdsong, uh, you know, in a park or in a garden, wherever. Um, actually, if you can't get outdoors, you can listen to birdsong, uh, recorded birdsong, which um, can be very uplifting as well. Beautiful. Sue, it has been so, so lovely talking to you. And I will just mention your, your book, The Well-Gardened Mind, Rediscovering Nature in the Modern World, which is out now uh, by Sue Stewart-Smith. And it's a fascinating read and beautiful as well. And lovely personal touches in there as well, Sue. Thank you so much, Julia. And thank you, Giles. It's been a great, a great pleasure.
No, it's lovely to talk to you. You know what? I would like to be a patient of Sue's. I think she'd be a fantastic therapist. She's such a lovely lady as well. And I was really just really drawn into what she was saying. And it was just so fascinating. So much stuff that I've learned today on this on this chat we've had. And I know that the book for her was a real labour of love. I know that it took, I think it was Mm. four or five years, she told me in another chat that I had with her. Um, So she went into, and and when you read the book, the research is so detailed and it's so well done. It's it's really um, well put together. And it's lovely to talk to somebody so knowledgeable about one subject, isn't it? It Absolutely. And I loved all the things about, you know, being able to hear our own thoughts when we're in, you know, when we're gardening or in, and it's not just about gardening. I have to say it's about just being in nature, isn't it? It's about spending time in, in that space or, Mm. you know, in in, in a green space or in the park or anything like just all those things or in a forest, wherever it might be. It's not just about, you know, obviously gardening is great and you know, you, it can be very, you know, it can make you feel very productive and it can give you sort of sense of purpose and achievement. And we found that ourselves actually over lockdown doing that with the children and yeah. they had such a sense of purpose and, and, and that feeling when you've got, you see that little seed growing into something is just so special. And, and time and time again, what people are telling us when we talk to them on this podcast as well, when we get into this subject matter, there's, there, I, I hear so many people saying, this is how we've evolved. We need, we need nature because we've evolved from it. It's this constant mm. and we we need to stay connected to it. That's what I said to Sue, wasn't it? When we do, yeah. we, we genuinely do. Now your quote was brilliant. Uh, into Sue, I found another very, very good quote. No, it's not me. If this is Sue, this is from Sue's book. And I thought this was a nice way to end because um, she talks uh, in the book, one of the chapters covers um, Voltaire, who's the 18th century philosopher. He became famous for uh, sort of his French enlightenment. That was his, his genre. Yes, Voltaire. Yeah. Voltaire. Um, he was big so in this, the enlightenment game. Big in the enlightenment game. Yes. And we're big in that enlightenment game now, aren't we? <laughs> I like I I like this quote. So he once wrote, and this is from Sue's book, I have only done one sensible thing in my life to cultivate the ground. He who tills a field renders a better service to mankind than all the scribblers in Europe. Oh, that's beautiful. Isn't it? And that is, again, goes back to what we're saying again and again and again, which is you've got to get your hands dirty. You've got to grow some stuff. You've got to that. That's the enlightening. That's the enlightening stuff that we do in our lives. And the positive stuff. And the positive stuff. And ladies and gentlemen, on that positive note from Voltaire and Giles and I, we shall leave it (laughs) and say that we hope you enjoyed a little bit of positive uh, this time. And we've loved having you with us. Thank you for all your comments. Thanks for all your messages. And uh, get your friends to subscribe. 